Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, suicide, incest, and rape that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Between World War I and World War II, Paris was a firecracker of culture. Jazz made its way from the West and filled dance halls and cafes. American expatriates like Gertrude Stein and Ernest Hemingway ran through the same streets as Coco Chanel and Jean-Paul Sartre. The city of love was truly the place to be. But not every Parisian neighborhood was speckled with glitz and glamour. Further out from the Arts District and the Latin Quarter, on the eastern side of the city, was the 12th arrondissement. This dense district was packed with working-class families keeping Paris running. One of the biggest employers in this area was the Almighty Railway. The blaring whistles and squealing tracks promised good, stable jobs to poor peasant boys from the countryside. These jobs provided a new level of social mobility. Still, work on the trains was grueling and often dangerous. The railmen worked long, irregular hours that isolated them from the social world. So returning to their families in the jam-packed 12th arrondissement was a reprieve. But for Jean-Baptiste Nozier, an engine driver who everyone called Baptiste, home turned out to be a dangerous place. After giving most of his adult life to the railway, Nozier met his end next to his wife in their apartment. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives closed the case. You can find episodes of Solve Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free exclusively on Spotify. This is our first episode on the 1933 murder of Jean-Baptiste Nozier, a working-class engine driver in Paris. This week, we'll cover the startling reveal of his killer, as well as the winding hunt for both their location and motive. Next week, we'll cover the many twists of the trial and the dark secrets that were brought to light. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. 
The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I'm just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Summer evenings in Paris were warm, but in the 12th arrondissement, the air of the Seine provided a cool touch. The early hours of Wednesday, August 23, 1933, were no different. It was scarcely past one in the morning when Ernest Maiol was woken by a pounding on his door. Ah, Violette. What is it this time? What are you doing up so late? Please, Monsieur Mayol, it's my parents. They're not breathing. Oh dear. It'll be all right. I'm going to call an ambulance. I found them in the apartment. I think, I think they've committed suicide. Emergency responders arrived on the scene sometime later. It didn't take long for the other tenants to step outside and gawk at the commotion. Two bodies were pulled from the apartment, Baptiste and Germaine Nozier. Violette, their 18-year-old daughter, was a mess. Her makeup was smeared from crying, and her fashionable dark bob was disheveled. And though most of her neighbors tried to be sympathetic, some couldn't help but notice the new dress she wore. They wondered if her unkempt state was purely from mourning, or if she'd had another one of her scandalous nights out. Violette and the gossip were left behind as Baptiste and Germain were rushed to the hospital. But it was too late for Baptiste. He suffered from immense internal hemorrhaging and was declared dead on arrival. His wife, Germain, just barely clung to life. Whatever toxin had torn apart her husband's insides did not have the same hold on her. Even stranger... There was a small gash across her forehead. Doctors and nurses eventually stabilized her. Germaine was unconscious, but she was alive. When the sun finally rose on Wednesday, August 23, 1933, police and reporters alike filed into the Nozier apartment building. Violette escorted District Superintendent Lugiu du Penenros into her home. Penenrose was an experienced inspector and had a keen eye for detail. He first noticed that both the bed in the bedroom and the fold-out cot in the dining room were unmade. Moreover, the cot had blood stains on it. Violette told the police she suspected her parents tried to commit suicide, but to Penenrose, it looked like there had been a struggle. Next, the inspector opened a few of the drawers. He found an expense book. It was thoroughly detailed, but strangely, there was no entry for August 22nd, the day before the Nozieres were discovered. Penenros scratched his chin and wondered. He supposed it was possible that they had stayed home all day before going through with the act. The alternative was that they had gone down a day earlier. So much of the scene wasn't adding up, and Penenros was acutely aware of Violette's eyes lingering on him. 
He had done his best to ignore her and go about his work, but then he found a letter conspicuously left out on a table. It was from Violette to a man named Jean Dabon. Who is Jean Dabon? Oh, he's my fiancé. I must have left that out. You're engaged. Congratulations. Is that who you were out with last night? No, he's not in town. I was with a dear friend of mine, Madeline. I sent a telegram telling my parents I would be out late. I suppose they never got it. It's such a tragedy. I was meant to go on a vacation today, but I can't possibly do that now. With your fiancé? No, with my friend. Madeline. No, Janine. She's the sister of Dr. Duron. Are you familiar with him? I'm afraid I'm not. Well, he's absolutely wonderful. Dr. Henri Duron, he's- Thank you. I think I've got what I need. The district superintendent left Violette to the reporters. Something about her seemed off, but he couldn't put his finger on it. He needed to know more about the Nosiers, who they were, what kind of company they kept. There was one person who knew all the goings-on in the building, the concierge, Madame Angèle Bourdon. He sidled up next to her and asked her a few questions. Quite a commotion out there. Such a shame it happened to such nice folks. Were you friends with the Nosiers? I wouldn't say friends, but they were good, hard-working people. Baptiste and Germain got along well. I never heard them fight, though the wife was a bit of an odd duck. And their daughter, hmm, what a handful. Violette seems to be doing all right for herself. She's engaged. <laughs> I can't believe that. She's always going out and coming home late. Rumor is that she sees all kinds of boys. I can't imagine her father liked that very much. Punnan Rose made note of a possible rift between father and daughter. It might have been nothing, but since he had a strange feeling about the whole situation, he'd bring it to his colleagues. Madame Bourdon also confirmed the basic life story of the Nosiers. Baptiste was an engine driver for the railway. She told Penenros that most of the men there worked for the railway. In that way, the Nosiers were a very typical family. On top of that, they were well-respected and frugal people. And with the exception of a rebellious, independent daughter, they seemed perfectly happy. Penenros couldn't help but wonder why happy people would kill themselves. But he had been in this business long enough to know, sometimes the cheeriest folks have the darkest secrets. The summer sun beat down from high in the sky. As the afternoon rolled in, the flock of reporters ran back to their newsrooms. They started printing their stories, many of which were speculative and sensational. The police, on the other hand, were trying to be more thorough. Penenros called in his colleague, Inspector Godet, to get another pair of eyes on the scene. It wasn't long after Penenros left, however, that Godet got an important alert. Germaine Nozier was waking up. The inspector quickly informed Violette of her mother's status. Violette and Godet hopped in a police car and made their way to the hospital. It must be some condolence that at least your mother survived. Of course. I'm thrilled to see her. Do you know what condition she's in? Is she speaking? I don't know for sure, but we'll find out together. Oh, wonderful. As the inspector and Violette approached the main entrance, 
G'day couldn't help but notice how restless the young woman seemed. You seem nervous. I'm excited. Perhaps it's best you wait in the lobby. I'm just going to make sure that your mother is ready for visitors. We we don't want to overwhelm her. Violette flashed him a demure smile and agreed. G'day was led to Germaine's bedside. Madame Nozier was weak. Her eyelids fluttered, but she had a sharp awareness and a simmering anger. G'day introduced himself, but Germaine cut right in. Ah, it was her! She did it. Ma'am? I don't understand. Who did what? Violette, she poisoned us. You're saying your daughter... I no longer have a daughter. I no longer have a husband. Just leave me to die. Inspector Gaudet rushed out of the room. He knew Violette had been behaving strangely. Now he knew why. But as he rounded the corner back into the lobby... Where is she? The girl? She left. You, you let her go? She asked me if she had to stay, and I didn't see any reason why she would. Did she say where she was going? No, sir. I didn't ask. Violette Nozier had disappeared. Up next, the search for Violette becomes a citywide hunt. The most urgent mysteries in the world are missing persons cases. The stakes are too high not to pursue every plausible possibility. And some implausible ones, too. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new podcast, Disappearances. In 2020, after spending years searching for the truth, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now, every Thursday on Spotify, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. From child abductions and mystifying murders to those who took drastic measures to start over, each episode of Disappearances journeys through a different high-profile missing persons case, ripped from the headlines and ripe for explanation because no one just vanishes into thin air. The answers are out there, waiting to be found. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Hear a new episode every Thursday, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Just after midnight on August 23rd, 1933, in the densely packed working-class 12th arrondissement of Paris, Baptiste Nozier and his wife, Germaine, were found unmoving in their apartment. They had been poisoned. While Baptiste succumbed to the toxin, Germaine survived, 
And when she awoke in the hospital, she told police that their 18-year-old daughter, Violette, was the culprit. But by that time, the young woman had already disappeared. Newspapers had been making a meal of the scandalous scene before all the details had come to light. But once the revelation came out that the ill-reputed daughter had done her own father in, inflammatory headlines blazed across Paris. Precociously vice-prone daughter. Despair of her parents. Police forces all over France are looking for Violette Nozier. Girl who poisoned her parents, gone missing. Where is Violette? As these papers hit the streets, the public wanted to be part of the action. Suddenly, masses all over Paris were keeping an eye out for this mysterious murderess. However, the city was full of fashionable young women that matched Violette's description. Tip lines were flooded with sightings. A young woman tried to throw herself in the Seine. A dark-haired girl was on a train leaving Paris. Someone who looked just like Violette was seen at the market. All of them turned out to be dead ends. Meanwhile, back at the hospital, Germaine Nozier was filling in details for the police. She was weak and still recovering, but she wanted justice for her husband's death. She brought in the poison and told my husband and me that it was medicine recommended by my doctor, and my poor, unsuspecting husband drank it down. And did you do the same? Not at first. Violette dared me on. She'd pulled a stunt like this before back in March, so I was suspicious. But she asked me plain and simple, did I think she would poison us? How was I supposed to respond? It must be very difficult, knowing that your own daughter would do something like this. She's no daughter of mine, not anymore. My dear Baptiste worked himself to the bone so she could live a better life than he ever could. He gave her everything and she killed him. After you drank the poison, did Violette attack you? There's a cut across your forehead. Oh, I don't think so. I saw Baptiste collapse and start to convulse. I ran over to help him, but then it gets blurry. I must have gone out and hit my head on the bed. Pardon my indelicacy, but why do you think your husband had a much more violent reaction to the poison than you did? Well, I only drank half of the glass. Germaine's account helped to paint a picture of the family's dynamic. Both Germaine and Baptiste came from poor country stock. Baptiste, in particular, came from a desolate village called Prad. He was able to escape rural life the way so many men in his situation did, joining up with a railway. He managed to secure the much-coveted position of engine driver. The job allowed Baptiste and Germain to marry and settle into a small two-bedroom apartment on Rue de Madagascar, shortly after Violette was born in January 1915. And just as Germain had hoped, Baptiste's job allowed them to give more opportunities to their daughter. Violette could be better educated than either of her parents. Germain said that Violette was an excellent student when she was younger. She might have been a doctor or a teacher, but as she grew older, she started acting out. She often claimed to be sick, and it wasn't always clear whether she was truly ill or making it up. Her grades dropped, but not so low that it merited much attention. In fact, most of her teachers commented that she was unremarkable in almost every way. 
It was difficult for her busy parents to keep track of her, and she would often take excursions into other parts of the city, which meant Violette knew her way around. She could have been hiding anywhere. There were many questions the police still didn't know how to answer. Even the timeline was unclear. By Germaine's account, Violette had poisoned them on the evening of Monday, August 21st. But the bodies weren't called in until early in the morning on Wednesday, August 23rd. They wanted to find out what Violette had been up to on the day in between. The police soon got their answer from Zoé Tessedre, the proprietor of a hotel on Rue Victor Cousin. That girl in the papers, she stayed at our hotel Monday night. Did you notice any strange behavior? Oh, yes, the whole thing was strange. She came back on Tuesday and she had bags of new clothes. She asked to rent the room again, but she left early the next day. Did she happen to say where she was going? No, she didn't say very much to us. After she left, my husband and I went into her room. She had locked the closet, which already made me uncomfortable. We forced it open and found the outfit she wore the first time she came in. But the most unsettling part, she left behind a handbag. Inside it was a tin box filled with rat poison. The picture was starting to come together. Violette poisoned her parents on Monday evening, then left them in their apartment and went to stay at a hotel. The next day, she went on a shopping spree for new clothes with money she had stolen from her parents. Then she sent a telegram on Tuesday evening to establish an alibi. Now the police needed to find out where she was hiding. Locating Violette in Paris was far more difficult than they had expected. They wondered how such a young woman could move through the shadows so effectively. As it turned out, it was because she wasn't moving through shadows at all. She was hiding in plain sight. And on Monday, August 28th, a week after Violette killed her father, the police received a tip that finally panned out. I know where Violette Nozier is. Thank you. We'll look into it. No, really. She's been going around with a friend of mine. She even carries the daily papers with her face plastered all over them, like she's following her own story. And you're certain this young woman is Violette? There's not a doubt in my mind. The man who called was named Count André Dupinguet, a young noble. According to Panguet, he was introduced to Violette by a friend. They met at the Champ de Mars near the Eiffel Tower, and Violette had used a fake name, Christine. Apparently, she had been bouncing around various hotels and homes, sometimes meeting up with former lovers, sometimes meeting new ones. When she met Panguet and his cohort, she put on the act of a well-bred, cultured young woman. She said her father had been an engineer for the railroad company, but he passed away recently. Her mother, she claimed, worked for a well-known fashion house. But Panguet swore he saw right through it. He did some investigating into her fabricated backstory and found that none of it held up. He congratulated himself on his own cleverness, though. Perhaps the fact that he discovered this all in one day spoke more to the frailty of Violette's lies than the quality of his sleuthing. The police wondered why Violette would bother with such disprovable lies. Perhaps, deep down, she wanted to get caught. Or perhaps the men she met up with never believed her in the first place. Perhaps they didn't care what she told them, 
as long as they got something out of the exchange. Regardless, the police now had their lead. With the young Count's intel, they were finally able to get one step ahead of Violette, and they knew where she was going. Later that same evening, Monday, August 28th, she went to a swanky cafe. As she arrived around 8 p.m., many young men took lingering glances, murmuring to each other about the beautiful young woman clad in a sleek black outfit. But before Violette could make it inside, three police officers emerged from the crowd. Violette froze in place, but her smile did not falter. She did not resist as the officers led her into the back of a police car and took her away. After five days of chasing their tails, the police finally had the young woman who poisoned her parents. Germaine's testimony was more than enough to make the arrest, but one question still lingered. Why did Violette do it? Up next, the case gets complicated when Violette's motive is revealed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And now... Back to the story. Violette Nozier, who had poisoned both her parents, spent several days successfully evading the Paris police. However, on August 28, 1933, she was finally brought into custody. It was late into the evening, sometime past 8.30, when Violette was brought before the officer in charge of her case. Inspector Marcel Guillon, Guillaume's duties technically ended once the arrest warrant had been made. He sent for the investigating judge, who would take over the case from there. But Guillaume wasn't always one for decorum and procedure, and so he began talking to Violette while they waited. Why'd you do it? Excuse me? Everyone's saying it was for money and the sense of independence. That you want to live your own life, go out on the town, do as you please, is that right? Sure. If they already think that, then why should I explain? I admit it. I'm guilty. Maybe it's true. But I can't help but wonder. Did you get in a fight or something? Were they such terrible parents? Why did you poison your father and mother? I didn't want my mother to be poisoned. So it was only your father you hated? Yes. But you won't believe me if I tell you why. Tell me. Maybe I can help you. Sometimes he forgot I was his daughter. Do you mean? He took me intimately many times since I was 12. 
Guillaume was stunned into silence. Violette, a girl of 18, was crumpled and sobbing before him. He took a moment, allowing space for the seriousness of Violette's accusation. Then he comforted her. Though he didn't say it then, he knew that the revelation might change the outcome of the case. Just then, the investigating judge, Edmond Lanoir, a stocky man with a small white mustache, barreled through the door. Inspector, what do you think you're doing? We were waiting for you. I was chatting with Miss Nozier, and she had some interesting things to say. Don't question her. It could be grounds for a mistrial. Get out, please. I will interview her tomorrow. You'll be all right. Tell him what you told me, okay? Mm-hmm. Out, please. The next day, Tuesday, August 29th, Judge Lanoir had his first interview with Violette. She told him the same thing she told Inspector Guillaume. Lanoir, however, was less receptive. In many ways, his mind was already made up about the case. By Wednesday, August 30th, Violette's confession had made its way to the press. Both the papers and the public's opinions became overwhelmingly clear. Violette was a liar and a wretch. The poisoner, Violette Nozier, accuses in her own defense the father she murdered. The parasite, Violette Nozier, already prepares her defense by making odious accusations. Violette Nozier, no doubt elaborating an abominable lie in service of a desperate defense, claims that she murdered her father because he abused her. The public ate up every bit of the scandal. Violette Nozier became everyone's favorite person to hate. To them, she was representative of an ungrateful, selfish young woman. She turned her back on her working-class parents, who had sacrificed so much to give their only child a better life. Judge Lenoir played into the spectacle of it all. He even set up an encounter between mother and daughter. On September 1st, Lenoir took Violette out of the prison where she was being held and took her to the hospital to visit Germaine. As Violette was escorted inside the hospital, a crowd had gathered. They jeered as she passed and chanted for her death. Lanoir saw Violette and Germaine across from each other. A small group of lawyers and experts were present. The tension was thick in the muggy air. The subsequent exchange could best be described as utterly vitriolic. Mother... Don't you call me that! You killed my husband, now you besmirch his name! Kill yourself! I mean it! Kill yourself! Mother, please... I would have noticed! You think I wouldn't have known? If there was any truth to your claims, I would have noticed! Mama, forgive me! Forgive me, please! Never! I will never forgive you! I only wish to live long enough to see you get what you deserve! Little was accomplished from the mother-daughter confrontation. It seemed more like a publicity stunt than anything else. However, it did set up the central conflict of the ensuing investigation. Despite her mother's vehement denial, Violette maintained that she killed her father because he molested her. On September 9, 1933, she gave a more detailed deposition to Judge Lenoir and a crowd of lawyers and reporters. In front of all these people, the young woman explained when her father raped her, how he did it, and how often. As she spoke, observers noted she seemed detached and distant. 
Some of them criticized her, calling her heartless and unfeeling. On the other hand, others started to reconsider their opinion of Violette. She spoke with such vivid and specific detail. When asked questions or challenged, she responded quickly and instinctually. If she was lying, some thought, she was the most convincing liar they had ever seen. Judge Lenoir very transparently disliked Violette. He made no show of hiding his distaste for her throughout the deposition. He was a man of certain status, and he looked down on people that he believed were frivolous. But to his credit, he did open a thorough investigation into Baptiste's character. Over the month of September, police conducted interviews with relatives, neighbors, and co-workers of Baptiste. Across the board, he was praised as being a moral, upright, and serious man. He never drank, and though it was common among railroad men to see sex workers, Baptiste did not partake. On one hand, this portrait of the perfect, hardworking father lent little credence to Violette's allegations. On the other hand, it also suggested that perhaps Baptiste was too serious, that in reality he was deeply repressed. What's more, Violette told police that her father used a rag to clean himself up after having his way with her. He kept it in his bedroom, hidden in his closet. On September 12th, officers revisited the Nozier's apartment in search of this evidence. And sure enough, they found the rag exactly where Violette described, with evidence of semen on it. But that wasn't all. In the bedside drawer, they discovered a journal with lewd stories and prints of pornographic images. These articles, secreted away in Baptiste's room, bolstered Violette's depictions of her father. Still, critics of Violette asked why she had never spoken up about her treatment. It was difficult to prove this sort of thing. It could all just be a convenient defense. But Violette had an answer for that, too. She had told people before. Violette told the judge the names of several friends she had shared her dark secret with. Judge Lanoir and his team interviewed these friends, and each of them backed up Violette's claims to some extent. However, it came with a caveat. Though she shared that her father had abused her, Violette's friends also admitted that she was prone to telling tall tales. What was once a universal public opinion that Violette was a guilty liar and a murderess became far less unanimous. Many people weren't sure what to believe. Rumors spread across Paris and even reached the villages where Baptiste and Germaine grew up. Germaine had returned to her hometown to recover and could no longer handle the rumors about her husband. On September 14th, two days after police found her husband's sexual paraphernalia, she marched to Judge Lanoir's chambers like a boxer entering the ring. Madame Nozier, you can't just barge in here. I'm in the middle of- I want to be the plaintiff. I beg your pardon? I want to enter the case as the plaintiff. You, um, Madame Nozier, you want to prosecute your own daughter? Yes. If you're going to do this, I need you to understand how this affects the case. You will have to give up guardianship of your daughter, making her an orphan. And if you're going to bring your damages before the court, it ups the charges against Violette. She will be subject to life in prison or even a death penalty. 
Do you understand? I do. Thanks again for tuning into Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with part two of Jean-Baptiste Nozier. For more information on Jean-Baptiste Nozier, amongst the many sources we used, we found Violette Nozier, a story of murder in 1930s Paris by Sarah Maza, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Solve Murders was written by Joseph Bricker, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking and research by Claire Cronin. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Brian Green, Brian Kim, Cameron Nakad, Rebecca Thomas, and Jen Wong. Solve Murders stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Disappearances. Every Thursday, join me for an exploration into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Following timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the truth. From prison breaks and child abductions to second chances, and even murder. We'll journey through the many reasons people disappear. Follow my new podcast, Disappearances, free and only on Spotify.